when he had left for uh, North Korea to see his sisters, I had asked him to cut hair. He might have been thinking, I don't, he might have been thinking something else, but I was thinking, um, get their hair samples so we could do a DNA test when you get back to make sure you know that it's them because let's face it, 57 years, um, you get a call saying that your sister who has, you haven't seen for all those years is alive. Well, first the call was that they're dead, but he wanted it to be true. You know, I think we all, we all did. Hello, this is Paul Lee, and what you just listened to was a snippet from the Divided Families documentary, which was directed by our guest on this episode, Jason Ahn. Now, the first time I watched this film was almost four years ago, and as Eugene mentions, that's really how I got involved with Divided Families USA and got to know Jason. So I was already pretty familiar with Jason's story and the background behind the film, but Listening to this conversation between Eugene and Jason in L.A., I was really struck by the fact that, well, one, Jason had a Korean-American partner for this film named Eugene, which I think is too much of a coincidence to believe. But two, the fact that Jason had just come back from a Fulbright and was in Harvard Medical School and the Kennedy School, and I'm sure he had a million other things to do, but he still made this film happen fundraising and finding volunteers and screenings in D.C. and all over the country. So it gives me a lot of inspiration and also a sense of urgency to actually make this project happen and stay committed to this project. And what Jason really reminds us is to keep our focus on the big picture and on the mission and of why we are doing this. And it's to share the stories and to connect the stories of these various divided families and to see the human aspect behind what's often a very politicized issue. So without further ado, here's the conversation between Eugene and Jason. Welcome back to another episode of the Divided Families Podcast. Today I have here with me the man who started it all. Jason on. Um, he is currently a physician residing in LA. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with me, especially given, you know, the heavy demands of a doctor's schedule. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you may have heard us mention Jason's name in our pilot episode where Paul kind of explains how he learned about the family separation issue. He actually learned about it through your documentary, which he discovered in college. So today we're going to be talking with Jason, who conceived of and produced this documentary. Um, and this will be a kind of special episode because it's not going to deal with the particular family separation issue. It's going to be more about, um, I guess, on a podcast that deals a lot with history, this is going to be a little bit about the history of our podcast, I guess. Um, so we'll dig into the history of Divided Families USA, the documentary, and Jason's own story. And I guess one thing for myself is, as I'm starting this podcast, I also hope to learn um, from you how to start and manage a project like this. Um, and also, how to deal with questions like how do we bridge the divide between, you know, raising awareness about something and also creating actual change and also smaller things like maintaining motivation. Um, so I think and I think that'll also be really helpful for listeners who are wanting to start their own projects 
uh, related to their own individual issues. Um, so I guess the first question that we usually start with on our podcast is, could you just tell us a story of how you got interested in the family separation issue? As you mentioned, um, many other media outlets were kind of curious about how, yeah, why a young person, first-generation immigrant, would care about such an unknown issue. Sure. Um, so when I was in college, I was very interested in the North Korean human rights issue and identity and growing up as a Korean American uh, in the States, being born in LA, being able to go to UC Berkeley for college. And so I started learning about the issues around North Korean human rights and started to dig into the history around Korea. During that time, my, my mom actually showed me a picture of her cousin who was at the time leaving North Korea. She was defecting from the country and she was in China at the time. And I thought to myself, you know, wow, I have some distant relatives in North Korea <laughs> who are fleeing the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I asked my mom to tell me more about the story. And she told me that my grandmother, um, so her mother was originally from the northern part of Korea before the country was divided. And that it was her last wish to see her younger sister as well as her, her brother in North Korea. And I, first of all, that was really heartbreaking to hear because I was very close to my grandmother. Uh, she mm -hmm. kind of raised us when we were children. Um, but I also thought to myself, you know, why did it take me till college to hear this story? That seems very important to know, you know, as a person trying to understand his place in the world, uh, his identity, and his personal family story. So that's how I got interested in the issue. Um, I was able to go to Korea, South Korea on a Fulbright Fellowship, and there I was able to actually meet my mom's cousin, who successfully made it to South Korea at the time. And I, you know, it was very surreal uh, knowing that she had left North Korea to make it to the South and only to find that all of uh, her relatives had actually immigrated to the U.S. So my, my grandmother's family all came to the U.S. because in some ways, even South Korea was a foreign place for her. You know, being in that Cold War era, you know, she couldn't go back home. You know, there was a lot of, uh, it just felt like a different place for her. So uh, she wanted to find a place where she didn't have to worry about the risk of war or that kind of thing. So I actually wanted to, I read about um, that experience in the article you wrote about how your mom gave you the picture of your family, I guess. I guess for me also as a Korean American, you know, first generation, one question I had was like, what led to that moment? Because for me, I don't know, just like my family doesn't just you know, go around like, hey, look at your past, look right. at who you are. And I feel like a lot of that is also the immigrant struggle where, um, you know, you don't want to, I think my family didn't really talk about the past too much because it's just, you don't need to know, like you just need to survive, you know, here. And that's just extra stuff that you don't need to worry about. Um, so what like led to that moment or was it really just a, here you go? <laughs> no, no, definitely. I, uh, first of all, I agree with that sentiment. I think you know, uh, growing up in an immigrant household, you know, people left the country for a reason, you know, to start a new life, find hope, pursue the American dream, uh, work hard and find a better life for your kids, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that was always a focus for my parents. 
so yeah, you know, it was about survival. It was about working hard. It was about doing our best in school and becoming successful. But I guess I shared a lot of what I was learning, and I just asked a lot of questions to her about what she knew about Korean history and what she knew about the issues around North Korea and why the country was separated and what her family experience was like and what our grand, what my grandparents' experience was like, and so it kind of became uncovered through my, you know, curiosity and and wanting to understand, and so she shared with me whatever. She could. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you majored in history, right? I did. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me, like, and I think I talked about this in our pilot episode too, where my history uh, interest in history kind of began while I was in Korea, and that makes a lot of sense because you know I'm literally where it happens. Um, but for you, like, what sparked that original interest or curiosity for history? Yeah, I I actually bring that to my junior high school U.S. history teacher. Oh, okay. uh, yeah. So we, she made us write a 10 page paper at that time. I think it was seventh or eighth grade. And I just love learning about how the world used to be and how mm-hmm. it affects kind of how our world is today. And so that's why I was very interested in learning the history, because I think it's important to understand where we all come from on a personal level, but also put that into a, a, a broader historical context. Mm-hmm. Um because I think that allows me personally to see how the world came to be and how it may move forward or how we may influence it moving forward. Mm-hmm. So, and you also studied biology, right? How did you reconcile those two things, I guess? Because you're, I mean, obviously you're very interested in the wider span of history and how things have changed, but also your work is very specific <laughs> to science, right? Yeah, I, I, uh, I started out being history and pre-med, I knew I wanted to go to medicine, uh, and then I eventually uh, did the double major with uh, molecular cell biology. Wow! Um, I like both, really. Um, I th- one of my kind of mo's has always been: if you like two things, just go and do those two things. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so obviously, it was uh, a lot of work and harder to do um, two two things versus one, but. I, I really generally enjoyed both uh, history and the sciences. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when my science brain was getting tired of organic chemistry, I would love to, you know, read about post-World War II economic history, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and, and vice versa. So it was a good mix. Mm-hmm. I guess this is just kind of a random question for now, but do you still kind of keep up with that balance in your daily life now as a doctor? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've kept that theme in my life uh, throughout the years. When I was in uh, at med school, I took a year off to study public administration at mm-hmm. the Kennedy School because I wanted to learn more about the broader leadership and sy- uh, systems-wide uh, influence and change, not just the individual clinical, uh, one-on-one clinical um, delivery that you do as a doctor. So I've always kind of had a dual track and even today, I, um, I'm in the healthcare sector, so I'm working for a company called Equality Health, and uh, we're trying to improve the healthcare for underserved communities. And so I'm, doing, I'm learning that healthcare side of, of the equation while still you know, working clinically. Mm-hmm. So I've always maintained multiple tracks in my life. Yeah, <laughs> very, uh, very relatable. I was also pre-med so, or pre-med in English. So 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think life is really short. You know, being an ER doctor, I see folks um, get, you know, just tragic things happen to them. So, I, you know, I've always kind of felt like, you know, to use a millennial term, YOLO, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you only live once, so try to try to do as much as you can to make it worthwhile. Mm. And I guess before we go into the project, the last question that I had was, do you have kind of any advice for broaching these issues with your own family history, like bringing it up? Or is it just kind of a, you just got to, as you said, YOLO, like just ask the questions, deal with the awkwardness later. Um, and I think that's also something that I'm hoping to gain from this project too, is like discovering more of my own family history. Mm-hmm. It's not very developed in my mind. And also, as I mentioned before, it was just something that we don't really talk about too much. Um, whereas I know other families, it's just stories all the time about what happened, whereas that was not the case for me. Um, do you have any kind of advice for that or any kind of... Yeah, I would say that just being uh, very genuinely curious uh, with mm-hmm. your parents or even your aunts and uncles or grandparents, if they're still around, I think really showing that interest and curiosity and that an open mind to really want to learn and hear the stories will really open up doors. And, you know, folks generally like to talk about themselves and their experiences. So you got to give them an opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for that, the divided families generation, I think they kind of hold in a lot of their stories. Um, And some of them may have felt like maybe their, their kids or their grandkids don't really care. And uh, they felt very grateful to be able to uh, share their story with someone who really wanted to listen. So Mm -hmm. I think just having that, that open heart, open mind and that curiosity, the genuine curiosity of like, wow, what happened? You know, tell me more. I think uh, you'll get a good response. Yeah. So could you briefly now lead us through kind of the story of um, how you conceived and produced the film, Um, conceiving and producing the film? And was there like a particular moment in the beginning when you decided, you know, like this is something I want to do or was it just kind of a gradual, like eventually I was working on it type situation? Yeah, so I went to Korea on the Fulbright, and there I met some colleagues who were filmmakers. One of them was doing a documentary on the Korean comfort woman. Mm. Uh, Another one was making a short feature story uh, film about his grandfather, who was in a um, North Korean prison camp because he was a pastor at the time, Mm. and how he survived and escaped. Uh, So that kind of gave me an intro into, wow, you know, these folks can do it. Why don't we get together and focus on the divided families issue? So after the Fulbright, I just kept thinking about it during med school because I felt like, wow, uh, you know, this generation won't always be with us. In Mm. fact, they'll probably all pass away very soon. And so we only have a short amount of time to capture their stories and really get the word out. And really advocate for them. And so as I was studying, you know, biochemistry in med school, I would keep thinking about the divided families issue and why it wasn't at the forefront of Korean American discourse or thought or, mm-hmm. you know, you just don't really talk about it that much, yeah. like amongst your friends or your family members or your cousins or, you know, it's just not a thing. And so I thought, wow, why isn't it a thing? We should, this is so... Uh, one, it's so tragic. One, it, it number two, it really affects people's lives. You know, like our grandparents' generation. You know, why don't we remember and honor the stories, and why don't we do something about it? And so, 
I just had that burning desire in my heart. <laughs> it sounds kind of cheesy, but uh, it just kept coming back to me. And so toward the end of my first year of med school, uh, I thought, all right, let's do something about it. You know, I know some folks who've done it in the past, so let's leverage their strengths. And that's how it began. I think it's similar to this podcast idea, too. It's kind of just something that you can't get out of your head, right? It's like, I just got to... I mean. Well, I guess that leads into the next question that I had was the divided families issue is a kind of time sensitive issue. Like, it's Absolutely. A, yeah, it's going to be um, something that we have to work on now, like very pressing. But how did you kind of keep that urgency on your mind when you could very easily because it's not like you're, you know, sitting down doing nothing like you had two very demanding um, course loads. So how did you kind of keep that urgency, sense of urgency? Yeah, I, I would say having a strong team to support me and support the, the issue was a big factor to keeping motivated and keeping the ball rolling. So early on, I met uh, a film partner, Eugene Chung, uh, who was going to Harvard Business School at the time. And so he was very interested in North Korean issues. And uh, I said, hey, let's partner up. And we, you know, we sat down for lunch and then we got out uh, left lunch as partners and uh, had folks, my colleagues from the Fulbright, help with some of the first interviews, help set up a, a website. So it was really leveraging different people's skills. Mm -hmm. And and so we had over 100 volunteers on the project. Oh, wow. yeah. And part of my Kennedy School days, I learned some of the some management skills, I guess. Um, oh, okay. You know, I, I remember a case where somebody would take any volunteer and find a place for them in their organization. And so I kind of kept the same mm -hmm. attitude. Anyone who was interested, you know, try to align their goals and, and what we needed at the time and made, we made it happen. And so little by little, we would just keep going on to the next stage and, you know, go through pre-production and uh, production and post-production was really hard mm -hmm. as well as uh, distribution. So. It was hard to maintain both at the same time, but I think just the the urgency of the issue and the fact that, you know, these divided families had shared their stories with us and we mm -hmm. had done the interviews with them, I felt really responsible to mm -hmm. make sure that the story was told. And so uh, that, that kind of kept me going. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for volunteers like managing volunteers, keeping them involved. And also, I feel like it's just a yeah, question that would be helpful for those running their own projects, I guess. Volunteers, it's like, you know, sometimes they're amazing. Sometimes they come once and they never show up again. Um, so do you have any kind of insight into that? Yeah, I think um, the important thing is, in my perspective, is uh, making sure folks are bought into the vision and the purpose of what you're doing mm -hmm. and and connecting what you're asking them to do to the bigger picture to show, hey, what it may seem like you're doing this menial thing, but it's actually very important to move the project forward. So, uh, you know, when you, f when you get that buy-in or they, you know, your volunteer might, they'll feel more invested when they see that what they, their personal task or what they're doing is directly impacting the issue at hand. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The other one I would say is, um, Figuring out what that person's interests are, you know, their their goals, what they want to get out of the project, what kind of experiences, what are their strengths, and trying to tailor what what they want to get out of it with what your organization or your project needs at the time. Yeah, 
we are looking for volunteers, by the way, to, to those <laughs> listeners who want to get involved. But um, aside from that shameless plug, I guess on the topic of motivation and urgency, how do you like? How did you deal with the fact that like the uh, the divided families documentary is also kind of the same as this podcast, where it's raising awareness and given it's a thing that not many people know about. I didn't know about it until this documentary, right? So um, that in itself is really fulfilling. But how did you kind of balance that with um, a desire for like actual policy change? Um, and I think Paul and I also talk a lot about how these issues are so large and outside of our control, like they involve entire governments. <laughs> right. So how did you kind of um, deal with that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it took a while to figure out that we didn't have the final say in, in the intergovernmental relationship between mm-hmm. North Korea and the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, but we were doing our best to influence it. And so, you know, the purpose of the film was not just to make a film. It was actually to make an impact. Um, it was to record the history, to raise awareness, and to advocate for this, you know, dying generation whose last wish is to know what happened to their family member in North Korea. And as American citizens, who can really help do that? It's the U.S. government. And so, you know, we decided to put the film online just so that it was accessible to anybody. We Mm -hmm. had a lot of screenings that were grassroots with the Korea Society while we're editing the film. We had it at the Kennedy School. We had it UCSD. We've had it in all all over the country, actually. We also had something in, in South Korea at the Asan Institute as well. And so... You know, those grassroots uh, events helped us push the post-production forward because we wanted to get another cut out, you know. Um, But once we kind of felt like, all right, this is this is good for now. You know, you can always do more. Right. Mm -hmm. As a creative endeavor, there's always you always feel like there's more that you can do. But Mm -hmm. because this was more of a um, action oriented, social awareness building type of film. We wanted to get it out there. So we released it in, I believe, 2014 through a congressional, uh, hear- not a hearing, but um, a Congress people helped sponsor an event uh, on the Hill. So it was uh, Senator Mark Kirk at the time from Illinois and Representative Charlie Rangel from the Bronx. Um, and then Jerry Connolly from Virginia was there as well. Mm-hmm. And so we, we released it that day. And since that time, our focus was more about advocating with our own government to put make it an issue for them to focus on it as a U.S. citizen's issue so that we could create a formal mechanism of reunion between Americans of Korean descent and their relatives in North Korea. Did you actually think all of that through when you conceived the project or was it just kind of like, I want to raise awareness about this and then as you were making it, you discovered or realized like, I can't just raise awareness like I have to kind of push for actual change or was that always the master plan uh i I don't think there was a a master plan to that detail but (laughs) (laughs) i think um the the spirit of the film was always to to make a social impact and for us that impact was it's still our dream and our hope that we can have a formal mechanism of reunion between u.s citizens and their relatives in north korea but i couldn't say it was all scripted out Mm -hmm. um in fact, uh, I believe it was 2016 when one of our friends and advocates who was working with uh, Representative Charlie Rangel helped pass a 
resolution around the Korean American divided families issue. And that really put us on the map as an issue in DC circles and foreign policy circles and started to get noticed after that. Mm-hmm. And I guess at those um, screenings, which did you attend all of those screenings? I was there for most of them. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah was the, <laughs> what was like the audience like? Was it mostly Koreans or was it pretty diverse? I would say it was, it was pretty diverse, but I think the majority were, were probably Korean Americans or, you know, folks who were interested in the issues around Korea. And uh, the Council of Korean Americans also had sponsored an event oh, okay. with the Brookings Institute mm-hmm. um, through uh, Professor Kathy Moon. So that was another great event for us to to talk about the policy implications Mm. how did you get non-koreans to be kind of interested or like how do you kind of understand their interest in the topic because the two congress people that you mentioned are not korean right Um, i mean given there are none except for the one andy kim now but um how did you you know like why were they interested in it or how did you kind of see that connection i think for the average person we can all relate to family because we all come from a family And so I think it was a universal theme that a lot of folks, whether you're Korean American or not, could relate to. And so it was really bringing it down to that level. It's not that it wasn't just a Korean American thing, but it was a, hey, just imagine if one day you were never able to see your parents for the rest of your life, right? Or imagine if one day you couldn't see your your brother for the rest of your life and you had no idea what happened to them because that's what happened to this generation. Mm -hmm. And once you kind of explained it in that way, folks would understand, wow, that it's hard to imagine, but I could kind of get a sense of what that would be like and how tragic that was. In the case of those Congress folks that came out, Senator Mark Kirk, his, I believe his father fought in the Korean War. You'd have to check, Mm -hmm. double check me on that. But Chahi Lee Stanfield, uh, she's, a huge advocate, you know, she was an avid supporter of his, mobilized the Korean American community in Chicago to vote for him and uh, to get him in, in Congress. So he, he really cared a lot about the issue and he still does. And actually his, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share this, but his sister is uh, a Korean adoptee. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. But uh, he was always a strong advocate. And, you know, when we we're first making the film, you know, he said, yeah, come on down to my office and we'll do an interview. So I was so excited when, yeah. <laughs> when that happened. <laughs> um, Representative Charlie Rangel was a Korean War veteran. And uh, Representative Jerry Connolly had a lot of Korean Americans in his district in the Virginia area. So I think, you know, f- he had some type of connection to the issue as well. Mm-hmm. Did you have any, I mean, I guess Paul and I are examples of this. In terms of, you know, we like watch the film and then we are now doing this and talk to our own families. But did you have any people come up afterwards or follow up other stories like ours, I guess? Starting other projects on oh, their not, own or? Oh, not projects, but just like this, you know, made me want to go uh, search for my own family history, that kind of. Yeah, I think, you know, there are parallels across history and time. I mean, I guess there's a lot of parallels across history, right? You know, there's the China versus Taiwan thing. And a lot of families were separated during that time. And I spent some time in Israel uh, during med school. And, you know, there's a lot of issues around family separation in the Jewish, you know, community as well as the Palestinian community. And now we have 
you know, and most recently, uh, the issues at the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. So, you know, family is a universal thing that I think most societies really care about. Um, it's really a, a fundamental building block of society, really. And um, yeah, there were uh, folks who made their own connections to their own personal stories when they uh, connected with the film. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last question that I have regarding the project itself was like, what did you personally gain from it, making it? How do you kind of see that? And then it might be a lot to answer, but um, yeah, what did you gain from it? And then uh, what advice would you have for people who want to start projects similar to your own? Yeah, I mean... That's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Might take you back in time a little bit, but... I would say we really started on the project probably in 2008 and 2009, so... And I've, I've still been working on the issue for since then. And so I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot in that time as, as a, you know, through the film, um, learning how to mobilize folks around the vision and around something that I cared about and try to get other people to care about as well. But also nitty gritty issues around fundraising, doing a Kickstarter before <laughs> like Kickstarter got big, you know, you know, doing, putting together transcripts and going through interviews and, you know, working with editors and sound folks and color folks. Uh, so it was, I learned a lot about the kind of the mechanics of filmmaking, but I think the most important thing I learned was learning to work with people, right? And communicate ideas and make sure folks are motivated and inspired. Mm-hmm. And that folks uh, see the broader impact that we're trying to make for this generation. So it took a toll on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how did but, you uh, how did you deal with like the difficult times or was it just kind of give it a break and then start back up? Yeah, it was it was hard because I, I sprinkled it throughout my vacations in school. Whenever I had free time, I would work on it. I think leveraging and partnering with folks who are also invested in the, seeing the project through was really important because when I kind of lost steam, they would help support. Uh, so it's always good to have a team and partnership. But I think toward the end, it was really just just a, a, a deep sense of responsibility. Like, man, went around the country interviewing over 20 folks and hearing their stories and we got to get it out there, you know, mm-hmm. just got to get it out. So I, I really wanted to see it through. Um, so maybe it was more of a personal kind of pride type of thing or sense of responsibility. But I think that's what really got me through to, to the finish line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are a lot of folks who helped along the way financially, you know, with their time, with their just being there as a friend and caring about the issue, caring about uh, the team. Uh, so it was... It was really good. I would, I, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah. Oh, well, that, yeah, that's what we want to hear. <laughs> um, and I guess today, like fast forwarding now to today, yeah. How do you see the? Well, what is your role in the divided families issue today? And then also, how do you see the current state of the situation? Sure, I'm more of an advisory role at this point uh, with uh, Divided Families USA. It's uh, the nonprofit advocacy arm of the project. Uh, it's being led by your partner, Paulie. Yeah. <laughs> Is he your boss or are you No, his boss? so I'm trying to support him to keep the issue alive and just to make sure that people know that we're still around and that we still care about it. 
and that we want to keep our legislators and our you know our representatives accountable right mm-hmm. and that hey don't forget about this issue um so you know i give a lot of credit to paul he's met with folks high high ranking officials at the state department you know giving talks about divided families uh to them he's helped organize congressional a congressional hearing in in congress around the issue and that was the first time that i know of where there was a congressional hearing on a Korean American issue specifically and we've advocated and got some other legislative resolutions in the pipeline um so we've reached out to the folks in the in the Trump administration as well so it's been really interesting to understand how our government works mm-hmm. um and how to influence uh it in in a way that we want to see it go so at this point you know we're not president trump or you know <laughs> kim jong un you know so we, you know we can't really make those decisions but we just want to make sure that you know everyone knows that we still care and that we're going to keep pressing for the issue mm-hmm. and i guess these days how do you now that you're like an advisory role how do you kind of balance um professional work and like the desire to do all of the other things that are out there yeah I guess just looking forward. <laughs> yeah, it's to it's a later stage in my life. It's hard. I I think there's a sentiment out there that really young people are the ones that really make a difference in the world, right? And just there's a lot of energy, passion and time, right? Um exploration and so I think for me I just want to support folks who, you know, want to keep keep the issue alive and and support other projects like yours, you know, mm. whatever way I can. whether it's making connections or you know giving advice or just being there as a sounding board mm-hmm. so yeah that's a really this uh, this idea has come up in the couple of the, uh, episodes that I've recorded so far like this idea of the younger generation these days being like the engine for change i mean we see it at the you know climate marches led by all these young people um and also there's kind of a resurgence of young people i mean i guess like ourselves too looking back towards the past and trying to create some change. So I think that's really fascinating. How do you see the older generations role other than like just advising given that they are the ones in charge? Like do you kind of think about that sometimes too? Yeah. Just kind of throwing that question out there. I mean, I I can't wait for us to be in those situations, in those positions of influence, you know, and our time will come, but I think Yeah, I don't know. Is it true that when you get older, you become more cynical or do you think that's just like a, um yeah. <laughs> I just kind of wanted to like dig into this idea before, but yeah, I thought that would be an interesting I, time. I don't I don't think it's it's a rule, right? Yeah, not, I think Not that you're old. Yeah. <laughs> older. Yeah. Right, I'm still, you know, relatively young. Um yeah. I would say that uh I think it's a choice, right? A perspective of how to see the world, right? It comes down to an individual choice. Obviously, we have our experiences that might influence how we see things, but I've always thought, well, I'm just the N of one, right? Like yeah. it's just one experience. And the guy next to me might have a totally different experience, right? And and so it doesn't really sometimes it, I think maybe my experiences don't even really matter that much, right? <laughs> like I could have a different perspective based on how I want to see the world and have that kind of agency, right? So I think cynicism, pessimism versus optimism, right? I think they're all kind of in this 
dyad, you know, their mm-hmm. triad or whatever, you know, it's all kind of similar, like two two sides of the same coin. So I think it's a matter of how you how you want to see the world and how you how you can convince yourself to see the way it you want to see it. I don't know mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. No, I think that makes sense. Yeah. And I think, I think, and obviously on this podcast, we're always kind of figuring things out as we're speaking. But at least for me, what I kind of thought about during that, from uh, what you just said is like, we kind of talk a lot about like, why are stories so powerful? Like, what is kind of the value of stories? Um, some people say that humans are storytelling creatures. Like, what is that? And I feel like it is just kind of that it's the way that we kind of communicate those, like think beyond our N1 experience, right? Right. Um, so I feel like that's, yeah, that's kind of what I thought about. Yeah. I think, you know, how do we connect our stories to a broader community, right? That we're not just these isolated individuals on islands acting independently of each other. Like we're all fundamentally connected in some way. So yeah, I I think there's a lot of disappointment that happens along the way, right? Even in, in terms of like your own experience or like yeah yeah you know my own experience going through uh you know just the film process or advocating on the hill and you know we would go around knocking on doors lobbying right to for this piece of legislation to get passed um and trying to see how come there hasn't been a formal mechanism of reunion yet you know why why is this not happening and so it's easy to get kind of discouraged i would say but again it's it's about perspective. Like I can focus on that or I can focus on, wow, we really made a stand, you know, we really, from an idea to a film, to legislation, to administration, thinking about getting this issue on their radar with the state department, you know, it's just, um, reflecting, I think reflecting on your, your wins is really important because it's very easy to say, oh man, we haven't gotten there yet. Right. We haven't, solve the issue so to speak but but look at how much progress we've made right so i would encourage your listeners or even myself to to think about projects in life in that way i thought i also mentioned this in another episode but i kind of think of the hong kong issue in this way a little bit how um, a lot of the younger people advocating on behalf of it they don't think that it's going to actually end up in concrete policy change but a lot of it is just kind of the act of doing something and recording that in history and i guess that relates back to what you're talking about in terms of pessimism and like optimism being kind of like a cyclical thing yeah because i find myself in moments where it's like i want to i'm very like optimistic but at the same time there are moments where i like the cynicism creeps in and it's like absolutely yeah it's like (laughs) it's like you're just a one person recording this thing in your room by yourself like you know it's it's not going to result in anything and then yeah it's just kind of and sometimes when you look back on what you've accomplished so far you can kind of feel like it's romanticizing like your success in some way but also if you don't do that you can't continue (laughs) like you can't just be depressed all the time so yeah i think that's helpful for or will be helpful yeah and i also think it's important to have people to do it with you because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's hard to do any of this stuff that on a scale that you want to do it ab- alone. Right. Mm-hmm. So making sure you find your, your supporters, your advocates. Um, I think that's really important because without a team, without volunteers, without funding support, you know, we, we couldn't do anything that we did. Mm-hmm. And I think as an English major, one of the things that really, one of the mysteries of the world that I still have never like probably will never solve but it is um like human existence is pretty 
difficult or impossible without somebody else. Like we can't exist by ourselves. It's just meaningless. And I don't know, like as I'm talking about that, I guess I kind of think back to family and to teams and, you know, families like that little bubble that you have with other people that gives you meaning or ties you to the larger story. But all of it is pretty mysterious. You know, what is life? What is um, these chain of events that you're connected to? Um, actually that does lead back into a question that I did actually write out, which was, um, like, what does family mean to you? I guess, like we all know it's important and there's also no concrete answer to this, but at the same time, yeah. What do you think about? Wow. That's a really personal question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, We came here to be personal. So no, just kidding. Um, I've family is very important to me. I think it's, it's interesting because we don't choose who becomes our family member. You know, we don't choose our parents. We don't choose our siblings. And yet we're, we're tied to them. And uh, family is, you know, theoretically there for you in the toughest times. So, you know, I've always felt like, you know, somewhat of a mediator in our family trying to make things right and, uh, you know, support folks, you know, my brother, my parents in whatever way I can. So I think, um, that had a profound impact on who I am today it is is my family and and wanting to make our lives better. I think that's a better answer than I could give. So, <laughs> um, and the last, well, I guess the last question that we usually ask, but this is a little bit different because this isn't a typical episode. But the last question that we usually ask is like, what is the main thing that you want people to take away from the issue? I guess you can approach it that way, or you can kind of answer a question about like what is so important about history at large because your this interview is not tied to a particular issue mm-hmm. yeah, so. mm-hmm. well i i guess i'll i will tie it, take the opportunity to tie it to divided families if that's mm-hmm. okay yeah um, which is a kind of open-ended yeah so i would hope that folks just learn about the issue and just honor the the tragedies that our forefathers whether you know they're korean american divided families or you know whoever whatever community that you're a part of uh that folks before of before us has have gone through a lot of tragedies right and and i feel like we should honor that and we should honor what we have and be grateful for you know the opportunities that we have especially living in this country right as as american citizens you know i i think to myself wow i could have been born in North Korea, for all I know. That wasn't mm-hmm. my choice, right? I could have been born in South Korea, you know, but I was born here in LA and had all the opportunities given to me. And um, I think just honoring that and, you know, if I can make the world a better place through my existence somehow, some way, in little ways and hopefully big ways, I think that's a successful and meaningful life. But, you know, and specifically for divided families i hope that you know more folks maybe who are listening to your podcast can kind of take some interest dig into it and and see you know what one generation went through Mm -hmm. yeah well thank you so much um i think i'm gonna squeeze this question in and if this gets cut out then it gets cut out (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna squeeze this question in um because i did want to talk about this too and i guess i can kind of wrap it up in the way where we are in la So I guess one thing that I've been thinking about while I've been here is, you know, you see this mix of cultures everywhere. You have tiny little enclaves of, you know, like Thai town, Filipino town, Chinatown. How do we find a place for our story within a very tight attention span? Like we have a very small attention economy that we can only deal with 
so much information at once like how do you kind of how do you personally deal with that and also like how do you kind of see that as a larger problem um or opportunity depending on how you look at it yeah yeah i think we're all part of the greater american story right uh folks who were refugees who came on a boat literally right from vietnam or china or you know folks who are fleeing places in latin america i think we all should take some time to understand our stories and the stories of others um, because I think that it makes us better people. I think that will help us understand that we're not so different from each other as some people would like to have us think that we all share common values, right? And that we're all here to provide a better life for our families, for ourselves, and for hopefully for our communities and our society at large. So awesome well thank you so much jason thank you thanks for listening and you can find the documentary on youtube if you search divided families film it should come up but otherwise you can follow a link on our instagram which is at divided families podcast thanks to final albert as always for the intro music and if you enjoy this episode please feel free to follow us on whatever streaming platform you're listening to now thanks